Branko Melodic and thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. You can catch up with news, projects, interviews and much more at architectureanddesign.com.au where you can also subscribe to our newsletters and magazine. Today we have with us, dare I say, a, a returning guest, a, a favourite guest, a, dare I say, almost a prodigal son, architect, author, educator, consultant, and some would say raconteur, the founder of Enverona Studio, Tone Wheeler. Welcome back, Mr. Wheeler. Hi, Branko. So, Tone, let's continue on from where we left off last time. Let's talk about the effect of architecture and design on contemporary Australian society. Society undergoes growth or change and the opportunities arise, you either make the opportunities yourself um, or the opportunities are offered. And I think there are those periods in which there is sort of stasis where things become constant and they tend to be, uh, in, my, in my terms, I think they're over-regulated. You, you, you start to prevent invention, creativity, and so on, or it moves to a different sector. Uh, one of those, I think, was the period immediately after the Second World War, when from, uh, if you set aside the, the war shortages up until 1950, from 1950 to 1975, Australia's population doubled. And that's an extraordinary growth rate. And you need to accommodate them in a country that didn't have a long strong tradition of, of building, um, relatively small, very sparse, and you start to build both good and bad. You know, you're building things uh, in suburbs and then connecting them with freeways and building shopping centres, and uh, they are using all the innovations that they can find, often American, you know, these shopping mall from Victor Gruen, the freeways that people know best in Los Angeles, but were also very widespread in the United States and then, of course, in France and Italy. There are times when there are great possibilities and there isn't the regulation to say, no, you can't do that. And that's when I think the flowering of architecture has... Um, the opportunities, because both the client base is saying, well, it's a new era, there's new possibilities, there's new adventures to be had. Please design me something that is going to be reflective of that inventive period. One of the things that I'm researching for an article, Branko, which I'll forecast, I found in the back of one of the books, that, because as you know, I'm a bibliophile, <laughs> I found a little catalogue for an exhibition of Sydney houses held at Farmers Blacksland Gallery, which is when the old Farmers was a department store. They had a gallery and they put 15 houses by Sydney architects, you know, Russell Jack, John Allen, Seidler, Neville Grusman, Max Collard, John James, these are the best architects of that time, 1961. It's August 1961, so it's 60 years ago. More. And the catalogue's really interesting because the one I've got 
somebody has gone to the exhibition and they've written in pencil what they think about these houses. <laughs> and it's, it's all about creativity and invention. So this is 1961. So these are houses built in the 50s by architects. They're small. They're very much connected to site. I mean, there's a comment in the book about how much stonework there is in the base of these buildings because you're in Sydney because it's on sandstone and it's the base of these buildings. And a lot of it is to do with glass and very wide areas of glass getting more sunlight in. There's lots of mentions of eaves and the extension of it into verandas and so on. There's a description of how the modern house might replicate the old colonial house and its veranda. This is 1961. I just, I was astonished. Um, the houses, they're, they're not all listed as to where they are. So I've actually, before I will ask you to publish this thing, I want to find all 15 of them and see what is extant. But I think it'd be really interesting to compare to say 15 of the best houses from the Australian Institute of Architects Awards in Sydney in the last, say, 10 years of, you know, of the 20 teens, and just see the degree to which those houses were trying to address fundamental problems, I think they were, of site, climate, topography, the forces, if you like, making the forms, or are they just about exploring other ideas, uh, ideas that might come about um, narrative, they might be about expressionism, they might be about form, um, they might be about uh, materials and so on. Um, I think there's a, there's a two-part um, thesis happening in there. But going back to your original point, what about the times that we're working in? I think it's a matter of opportunity and that was one of them, the, the, the time from 1950 to 1975, the end of Whitlam's government, and we tended to draw back after that period and things became rather stultified. It's the era in which Canberra is basically built. What is in Canberra now was built between 1950 and 1975. Um, all the great buildings that are there, you know, the uh, uh, except for the Parliament House, um, but the National Gallery, the School of Art, the School of Music, the High Court of Australia, um, most of the good um, schools, the, the innovative uh, housing schemes like Swinger Hill, um, the, the little pocket areas of retail that were designed by Dirk Bolt. There, there, there was an incredible era. Anyone who's read my obituary about Dirk Bolt will know that Dirk just turned up at the right time in the right place and being in Canberra when it was expanding enormously when it grew from basically 20,000 people to 250,000 people in 25 years. And you just got this huge opportunity for it to, to become um, a, an inno a pit of innovation. Now, we could segue from there into something else, Branko, if you like. And that's another era of innovation. And that would be immediately after the depression in Australia when Australia was growing in size. And um, there's a lovely little story to be told here, if I could. Um, there was a, a chap who'd learnt 
to do dental prostheses, you know, the um, making false teeth and so on, as his apprenticeship prior to the First World War. And this bloke, Bert, he had a brother-in-law, Horry, Horry Amos, who was a real estate agent. And he was encouraged to buy a house just before the war broke out. And then he enlisted and he worked two tours of duty, one in Australia, one in Britain, um, as a dental prosthesist for the army. So he served in the army. And he came back to find that the house that he bought had been rented out all that time, already looked after it, and it was paid for. And he went, well, this is fantastic. This is a great idea. I think real estate is a better thing than working as a dental technician. So he said about becoming Hori Amos's auctioneer. And for 10 years, from 1920 to 1930, he was an auctioneer. He sold houses. And he got to know what people wanted in houses. And he was, he was a very, very good, honest and decent man who listened to what was going on around him and absorbed it very well. Not overly ambitious, wanted always to provide for his family. And then as the depression hit, Horry turned in one day and said, look, we've got a real problem. We don't have any houses to sell. So Bert says, why don't we build some? And so Bert went and mortgaged his house and built a speculative house to sell. It was the beginning of a specky. And then they wanted to build another one and money got tight after, and they were looking to design houses, sorry, to build houses for people rather than do speculative ones. And Bert decided that the best way to do this would be to have a house design that you could sell to a customer with a contract that had a fixed amount of money to build that house on the owner's block of land. And that the owner could go to the bank and get a mortgage on that piece of land for the builder to build the house. And then, of course, A.V. Jennings Construction would build the house. So the Burt that I'm talking about is Albert Jennings. And he did this in, in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. And he built a dozen or so houses in various places, most of it... Um, around Glen Ira, Murrumbina, that sort of area, until he realised that the efficiencies that he wanted weren't available in building individual houses for individual clients all over the place. So he decided he'd buy a bigger block of land and subdivide it, and then he'd build all the houses on that block of land. And he bought a road called Hillcrest, Hillcrest Avenue, and built 12 houses. It's the very first series of project homes. And this is the mid-30s, this is 1933, 1934. And it becomes so successful that he'd done these houses. But where did the designs come from? Well, when he'd first set out, he realised he needed somebody who could draw house designs as he saw them. And he found a young student who was studying at the Workingmen's Institute, not many people have heard of the Working Man's Institute. 
in Melbourne, but almost everybody's heard of what it became. That's its early incarnation. It became RMIT, the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology. And Edgar Merton Gurney is the student of architecture, not from a wealthy family, um, turning to uh, employment because he couldn't afford to remain a student all the time. And he works for Burt Jennings, and between them, they basically invent project homes. So throughout the 1930s, um, Edgar is designing houses in the current styles. So a lot of them are based on Californian bungalows or uh, Spanish mission style or sort of late Federation styles. But he's also himself designing houses in the kind of art deco and modern styles. Incredibly creative. I mean, he got lucky. Bert got the right architect. And they then build a whole, whole section of road on both sides of it called Beauville, uh, a beautiful town, basically what it means, both sides of the road. Um, and that's out in, near Huntingdale. And then it becomes so successful that he hears about some new subdivisions that are possible um, to the north northeast of the city and he goes to have a look at a couple of those subdivisions and decides he'll buy up quite a large number of the blocks of lands and they become two separate areas that he does one of them is uh, Beaumont which is based around Malcolm Road and Beauview um, which is a little bit further south of that and in building out these increasingly large estates, they, they range from 10 to 30, then 90, then 120 houses. They get larger in size. Um, he learns along the way that some people can't envisage what the house looks like. So he builds a house as a typical house for people to walk through, but he does it with the Gas and Fuel Corporation. Wouldn't be possible today, but... Um, and the same gas and fuel corporation who were responsible for what were known as the ugly sisters which um, were knocked down and became um, a very important part of melbourne's public spaces now um, and that whole notion of being able to go and visit a house you walk into the house and see a whole um, layout of the house, all the equipment, all the, the modern appliances and so on, becomes the first display home. So in a period of about five, six years, between the onset of the worst of the Depression in 1932-33 and the outbreak of the Second World War in 1939, he basically invents estates and subdivisions. He toys with brick veneer construction he has display homes and he basically invents the entire industry of project homes. Um, during the war, um, the building of houses stops as government edict and they, they build, as in Edgar Gurney Designs and A.V. Jennings Construction Company builds munitions factories and 
a variety of um, buildings required for the, the war effort. And then it starts up again after the war. And Edgar Gurney stays with A.B. Jennings as a personal architect almost. What's interesting is that Gurney built a house for himself in Beauville, Beaumont and Beauview in each one. And also Albert Jennings lived in each of those subdivisions so that if there was unhappy clients, they could go and knock on his door day or night and complain about something. But you, I thought that was an amazing commitment to it and how they learnt it all. Gurney leaves work with A.V. Jennings in 1954, but by that stage, I estimate that he's designed about 10,000 individual homes, adding up the number of houses that Jennings has done in all the estates and looking at how many of those were individualised by an architect putting a different front, different, you know, there were different facades that you could put onto different house plans. Much the same thing goes on now. Um, in if you go out to Homeworld in Sydney, a variety of there's now four or five Homeworlds. You can go and look at these display homes, and you can look at display villages in Melbourne, and you can see how it's a kind of mix and match, which all started with Edgar Gurney and and Bert Jennings. Now I reckon that's just taking advantage of the opportunity. There was land available that was cheap because it was post-depression. There were people who couldn't keep up the payments on it. There's a legendary story that um, when uh, Bert Jennings was trying to lodge some plans at one of the councils, um, I, I think it's Heidelberg um, that he's there. He, he overhears a conversation that somebody's got some land that he can't pay the duties on and he wants council to put the roads in. And he ends up buying this piece of land, which forms part of the estates that, that he does. Um, it's, it's either around the Heidelberg area um, because he learns that Heidelberg Town Hall is being built, that it tracks him to that area. But prior to that, he'd been um, further south at Murrumbina. And he just takes that opportunity and, and invests in it, puts his own money up and then lives on site and, and it's quite some time before he builds his own holiday house and then becomes involved in Jennings providing you know, holiday houses post-Second post World War. But I think that there was that period when, uh, if you look at the houses, it's the appliances in the houses that are so astonishing. You go from having an ice, an ice chest to a full refrigerator, electric-powered, not gas-powered. And you go to you know, proper cooktop to it. You look at um, even houses immediately after the Second World War had um, a, a copper for washing. You know, there, there wasn't a washing machine. And this, one of my favourite ones is a, a house by Arthur Baldwinson, a very well-known Sydney architect. And he just, it's got three tubs and six taps <laughs> in the in the laundry. It's like it's, it, almost equivalent to a laboratory in a high school. Um, there are innovations in all of those things. And then the war depresses everything as a problem following the war. And then I think there's a belief that Jennings is part of that, that you can build huge suburbs out there. And the, the suburbs unfolding, it's not long before 
Jennings is employed by the Housing Commission, as it was then in Victoria. He builds a very large number of social housing, as we would call it now, for the Housing Commission. He moves to Canberra. He's instrumental in building out Canberra, as I was talking about earlier on, in the 1950s and 60s. He builds a huge number of what are known govies, as it was known if you lived in Canberra. They were the government house. And he moves to Sydney and he spreads his wings to other cities. But by this stage, you've got to realise that he's, he's quite a lot older than all the people that are working for him. He's, he's born just before the turn of the century. So by the time he's working in the 60s, he's in his 70s himself. And you may remember, the older listeners might remember, there was an ad in the early 1990s when they were extolling the new Jennings houses and they had all the mod cons and so on. And then this face pops up at the end and he goes, it makes me a very proud old builder. I remember that, actually. Yeah, that was Bert himself. That was Bert Jennings. He'd been retired for 25 years at that time. You know, he, he died in, in his mid-90s, uh, not long after that. But the I think the interesting thing was that he, the books that are about him, let's put it this way, the books that are about Jennings are about his principles his beliefs, his um, methodologies, his inventions in terms of estates, display homes, moving into different areas of um, commercial work. None of it is about design. None of it touches on the fact that Gurney creates for him very satisfactory houses that will earn him a quid, a, a very good quid, um, for his work. Um, I think that's um, a very long-winded way of addressing that thing about why are we creative sometimes and why are we not? We've had a long period in which we've had a very stable but very property-driven idea of our cities and our architecture. And I, I welcome the fact that the new federal government has put an emphasis in, in a number of areas that could lead to innovation. You know, one of them, which is, of course, um, Linda Burney's great emphasis on looking to the voice to Parliament for Indigenous to right that wrong, which means that we need to know a lot more about Indigenous culture. We need to be looking at um, Bruce Pascoe and Bill Gamage and reading Paul Mehmet's book. Um, we need to absorb that culture that we, we, we've ignored. And that, I think, could leave it to a flowering of things in the same way that um, Indigenous painting has become so incredibly successful and popular. Uh, I think we might see Indigenous design following along in that. I think there's a huge possibility for us to recommit to a kind of um, what I call low and close housing, that is higher densities, low-rise, close-quarters community. Can we think about the integration of social housing into our cities because it's become so dire, we have this enormous need now 
and it can't be solved by doing the old-fashioned idea of the high committee you know the housing commission towers we need a low and close now I, I think this has been something that's been available for 20 years indeed there are institute of architects publications on medium density housing from the late 1980s these were books that were edited by Judy Volker and all more power to her as a brilliant uh, contributor. Um, but in those, there are the possibilities of low rise, high density, and it's the bit that's missing. I, I think when the possibility of a golden age, if we no longer, if the property market's not driving it, if the, if there is a stabilization of housing prices and values for the next 10 years or so. And if we then start to recognise that we need to, you know, obviously you've got to do a few things like remove negative gearing and abandon the, um, the, the discounts for capital gains, but you could actually then have a, a really a radical reworking of our, of our cities. You could do something which would be as amazing in innovation as you know, the pre-war eras of A.V. Jennings or the post-war era of um, Canberra and um, the development of um, the, the suburbs in all the cities at that time. You could build whatever house you wanted on that because the, there was a 99-year lease and it was so far away and you weren't concerned. And there wasn't the sense in which you could make a capital gain out of that because there was so much land that was going to be available and it was being subdivided. So land now, of course, it's become quite the reverse, that the land in Canberra is now incredibly expensive. One little side story about that. There was a developer, a guy called Henry Halloran, who believed that this leasehold arrangement wouldn't work. And he bought up a huge amount of land on the eastern side of the railway line south of Queanbeyan. So this is a, a big piece of land that runs down in New South Wales, and he subdivided it into blocks of land and he gave the suburbs names and he erected uh, roundabouts and he put, there's a statue of Sir Henry Parks sitting in the middle of this, and he started to sell off the land. But of course, at that stage, there was far too much land. It was too far away from the centre of Canberra and there was too much land available, so it didn't sell. And there were several suburbs made and they the names of those suburbs still exist one of them was Jerobombra, which is now a suburb in queen Bend that's connected directly into canberra because of course the early days the so-called y plan was more like an x because they forgot that there was queen Bend right next door and i met henry halloran's son in his 80s about 10 years ago who said he forgave me for stealing the name um, which was interesting but, and I had permission to use it, but en uh, en Verona is actually uh, got a postcode, it's 2603, um, of this piece of land, which is now just, it's still sheep grazing land. But it's, Henry Halloran is uh, such a wealthy land developer that there's now the Henry Halloran Trust at the University of, New South, uh, University of Sydney in planning, it's the largest trust that um, provide scholarships and research and public talks. Um, and Henry Halloran still runs, owns an enormous number. Well, it's through the family and through other trusts, 
owns an enormous amount of property. So that's where the wealth comes from. You own the property. This has been Talking Architecture and Design, talking to the wonderful Tone Wheeler. Until next time, goodbye. I'm Brent Kermelitic, and thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. You can catch up with news, projects, interviews, and much more at architectureanddesign.com.au, where you can also subscribe to our newsletters and magazine.